Welcome to the Vanguard Church Podcast. You're about to hear a sermon from Vanguard Church Central in the heart of Colorado Springs. With every message, it's our prayer that you hear and learn how to live out your faith in real relationship with Jesus and with others. May your faith be strengthened, your hope increased, and your heart inspired to live for Jesus no matter the cost. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening. Good morning. Welcome to Vanguard. I am glad you are here. Hey, hi. Thanks, Evie. I have a former student in the house. Hey, good morning. All right, well, we are glad that you're here continuing in Unusual Suspects. How are you guys liking this series? So let me tell you, let me tell you a little interesting trivia to get us going. So I have been on the teaching team 11, 12 years, something like that. I have been leading in Kelly's stead when he goes on sabbatical. So this is my 10th year, a solid decade. And never, never have we taught in the history of Vanguard on some of the people that we're teaching on this summer. Right? So it's an inaugural uh, investigation. Let me tell you two reasons you should be encouraged. One, your teaching team is always seeking God. We're always asking him, what do you want? What do you want? What do you want? What do you want us to say? We're just your go-between. And he's always ready to tell us new revelations from his word. Isn't that amazing? And then number two is to remind you that you're never going to overread the Bible. There's always new revelation to be found. And that's really what this series, in part, is about. And so we're going to continue today... And when I was uh, working to plan the summer series and the content, I had two people from the Bible, well, really three, if we want to get specific from the Bible. Hey, Cassie. From the Bible, and I really, really wanted to bring them into the series. Now, the first one you already heard, and that was The Bleeding Woman. That was our very first week one. And our, my second is today. Because today we're going to hear about two guys and they appear in all four Gospels. You got any guesses just from that? Two guys, and they appear in all four Gospels. And what's interesting about them is that when we initially engage them, we see them only in this very specific moment in their lives, and we see them only in this very specific way. And and really, they are, and perhaps appropriately, dumbed down. Their part in the story is minimalized because it takes place in this greater moment that is sort of the, the, the moment of Christianity. But what we can take from them in this moment of their lives, when we dig into the details, as this series is attempting to do with you, is that we find that they epitomize this idea of win some, lose some. And so that's what I titled my sermon today. Win some, lose some. You know that old adage? Sometimes you win some and sometimes you lose some. And we mean that almost like um, a comforting, right, Andy? Where we're like, well, you didn't get it today, but maybe tomorrow. But what we see in the spiritual is that it's already been decided who won, amen? There isn't a question of who's the winner. We know the winner hanging on the cross to set you free from your sins forever and to provide you with the choice to choose eternity with God is Jesus Christ alone. So what are we trying to win then? Well, we've got a lot of battles in our life. 
We know that Jesus has won the war, but we're trying to win the battles, the battles of our flesh, the battles of a fallen world, the battles of our worries and our anxieties and our fears put into play. But what we'll see in scripture today is that there's a few things we need to learn and in learning them, we win our lives for God. And there's also something we need to lose. We need to release it so that we can do the same, which is to win our lives for God, because we know where we're ending up. It's the process that's the killer, isn't it? Isn't that the truth? Amen. I know my favorites are right here in the row. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at these two guys, and they appear in four Gospels, and we're going to be thinking about these two key questions that are in your program. They're in your Bible app if you're joining us online. What do we have to learn And what do we have to release? What do we have to lose? Because these two guys, one's a winner and one's a loser. So join me today. We're going to dive in. We're going to be a little bit everywhere in the Gospels because what I've done is taken all four and I've woven them together so that we can see this beautiful, mind-blowing arc. And if I do my job well, which is always my aim, this is going to be a revelation for you. Are you ready? Let's hit it. Matthew 27, 38, let's meet these two guys. Then there were two thieves. They were crucified with him, that's a capital H, Jesus, one on the right hand and another on the left. Now you'll note that I provided that verse for you in the King James Version because the King James Version resolutely uses the word thieves. So the two guys who appear in four gospels, the two thieves on the cross, that's an unusual suspect, isn't it? Why is it unusual? As I said, we meet them in this one moment of their lives. They're at the end of their life. And it takes place in the greater context of Jesus Christ dying, which is, as I said, the ultimate moment for Christianity. But here's what's interesting about these guys that maybe to us seem unusual, but to God, we're always meant to be. Always meant to be. In the ESV, here's what my research determined. You might find this interesting. So these are different translations. In the English standard, these guys are called robbers. Now, normally we use the English standard when we teach. In the NIV and the NASB, there are rebels. It's an interesting word, right? So we've got thieves, we've got robbers, we've got rebels. In the CSB, they're called criminals. But 700 years before we encounter them on their crosses, they're called transgressors. Look at Isaiah 53, verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he, who are we talking about here? Who is Isaiah prophesying? Who's the he? Jesus. Because he, Jesus, poured out his soul to death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for their transgressors. Are you already changing what you see about the thieves? See, they're not accidental. They're exactly where they're supposed to be. It was just how God, through Isaiah, foretold 700 years before they got there. There are no accidents. 
There are no small people when it comes to God. And have you ever thought about where Jesus was? Go back to verse 38 in Matthew. Two thieves were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. So where was Jesus? In the the middle. Now, historically, they may have placed him there as the primary example. They were making an example, they being the Pharisees, the Sadducees, Pilate, the government. They were making an example of him. But does man's plans ever trump God's? No. That's not really why he was there. What's an intercessor? An intercessor is a go-between. I am going to stand in the gap for you. And it says right here in Isaiah, he makes intercession for the transgressors. He's the middleman. And where is he placed on the scale? He's in the middle. Why is that important? Well, What we're going to see is the nuances of scripture over and over and over again. And we need to grasp that because in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. This is how detailed your God is. This is how detailed our God is. And here's Jesus and he's placed in the middle between the two thieves and he's making intercession for you. And for me, and here's what's the real kicker. He's making intercession for them. I can't even begin to imagine what it must have been like to be alive in Jesus' time. I want to know, you know that old question, if you could go back anywhere in time, where would you go? I would go to any moment where I'm standing next to the Jesus Christ. I don't care what he's doing. Just to stand next to him. And these two thieves, these criminals, these rebels, these robbers, these transgressors were hanging on a cross next to the Jesus Christ and they didn't get it. And they didn't get it. And the way they didn't get it is the way that humanity doesn't get it today. Nothing has changed. Because look at how they didn't get it. Matthew 27, verse 39. And those who passed by derided him, passing by. So these three guys are hanging on crosses and people are walking. They're just taking a stroll. That's pretty savage. And in the middle is Jesus and they're wagging their heads and they say, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. You ever had someone talk to you like that? Do you hear it? Don't just read the Bible and see the word mock and wag their uh, heads and deride him. Hear it. You ever had somebody talk to you like that? That's so stupid. Who are you to believe in this great God? And you're like, oh, he's so big and magnificent. And what has he done for you lately? I don't see you live in large. I see you struggling. I see you short on money. I see you uh, exhausted. I see you struggling in your parenting. I see you struggling at your, what is this, all this struggle? You ever had someone talk to you about your savior like that? Or look at another way. Have you ever talked to your savior like that? God, where are you at? 
I mean, I give to you and I give to you and I live for you and I serve you. We just saying, I just want to move your heart, God. It's all I want to do. But then on the other hand, what have you done for me lately? It's interesting how we can look at the word of God and we can look at these people and say, well, that's awful. And if we look into our hearts, are we mockers of one another, of the Lord? Verse 41, so also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders, they mocked him saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. That if, if you can show me your God, I'll believe your God. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Here's your first big takeaway. Write it down, put it in your brain. You have to learn to fear God. If the question is, what must I learn to win my life for God? You have to learn to fear God. Look at Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Here's your takeaway. If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, semicolon, related ideas, it's a fool who doesn't fear the Lord. And a fool despises wisdom and instruction, the two very gifts that you get from fearing the Lord. So what does it mean to fear the Lord? Now we think about that word fear, and I've taught on this before, we think about the word fear as I'm afraid of you, right, Patty? I think, oh man, you're gonna take me out. Well, fear in Proverbs and fear here is about reverence. I want you to get this word because this is the most powerful word when you are considering how you see God. And that is the word awe, A-W-E, awe. I'm in awe of you, God. In order to be in awe of God, you have to see him in his fullness. He is the creator. He is the redeemer. He is the author. He is the perfecter. He is the finisher. He's got every detail. He knows when you lay down and he knows when you get up. He counts every single hair on your head and he keeps every tear you cry in a bottle. That is awe of God. That is what it is to fear him. And why is that important to know? Because if you fear God, you see him as he really is. Not as the world tells you, not as your fears tell you, not as your sin taints you, but authentically, purposefully, beautifully as he is. If we do not fear God, we make the enemy very, very big. Because if we don't fear God, we'll find something to fear in his place. You fear the bill you can't pay because the balance in your checkbook isn't high enough. You fear that God is calling you to step out, but you're like, if I step out, back to the bill. You fear uh, you'll never be married. You'll never have children. You fear that someday your spouse will pass away and this person you've spent your whole life with will now be gone and you'll be alone. You fear that you won't have purpose in your life. No one's gonna remember you and no one will count you gone when it's your time. These are matters of the big. You may fear that the check engine light on your car is on. 
Whether big or small, if we are not captivated in the awe, the fear of God, we will find fears to replace it. And then we start making the enemy bigger and bigger. Now, hear me say, we don't want to underestimate. He's a thief that comes to steal in the night. Don't underestimate. But never, ever make him bigger than God. Don't underestimate him, but don't make him bigger than God. Compared to God, Satan is a blip on the screen. And he's already lost. He's already lost. But if we lack this fear, we do not see Jesus more clearly. And when we do not see him more clearly, we miss what he's doing in our lives. And when we miss what he's doing in our lives, we're more prone to say, where are you, God? I'm struggling, God. How have you abandoned me, God? Why aren't you faithful, God? Do you see that connection? It all begins with seeing him clearly, and that requires fearing him. John 19, there they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Do you see the continuity throughout the Gospels? That's powerful because when you're thinking about rightly dividing God's word and you want to know when someone says to you, is it authentic? We see the repetition almost verbatim. Verse 23, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes. Now stay with me here because at first you're going to be like, what? They took his clothes, dividing them into four shares and near the cross of Jesus stood his mother. Mm -mm. I'm a mother. Mother's in the room. Can you even imagine? But she stayed. She stayed until the very end. That mother did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, a group of faithful women at the feet of Jesus' cross. And when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved, every time we hear the disciple whom we love, who are we talking about? John. And he, Jesus, said to her, Mary, his mother, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. And so in this gap of scripture, Jesus dies on the cross. Verse 31, and now it was the day of preparation. And the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, because that would look bad. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. From this last few verses, I want you to grasp. The two thieves saw Jesus die. So when they came and broke the legs, they would break the legs because that was the last remaining support on the physical body on the cross. And if you break their legs, then the bottom support fell out of the body and then their weight would collapse and they would suffocate. That was the death of crucifixion. That is, if you made it that long. Because quite frankly, it is a miracle that Jesus even made it to the cross. An absolute fleshly miracle. Do you understand that? He absolutely should have lost all of his blood volume. When we go back and reread the torture that he, with, that he withstood for the time that he withstood it, how did he even get there except that he was God? 
and they see Jesus arrive. I mean, try to picture this. They see Jesus arrive, and he, at this point, I don't even know if he would have looked human. Can I say that? Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? The beating, the scourging, the, the thorns, the blood. Lord, what must you have looked like? And they see him show up. And he lays down on this cross and he's crucified. And they pop that cross up and there they're hanging next to Jesus. And their first reply is, look at you. Think about this. When you go back to Matthew, he saved others. He is the king of Israel. He trusts in God. I am the son of God. Because they had no fear of God, you know what they missed? Everything they said was true. Their mockery was true. That's incredible to me. Is he the son of God? Yes. Does he trust in God? Yes. Has he saved others? He's doing it right now. They missed it. And so here they are next to him and he dies. It is finished. But pay attention to what they saw before. I'm going to give you your second point and then we're going to build it out. You have to learn to be steady. Learn to be steady. Look at your beautiful Savior. Agony. We have no evidence in the Bible that he was without pain. Do you understand that? He endured the pain. So not only does the Bible not say that because he was God, he was alleviated from the pain, the Bible very clearly says he endured the pain on the cross, suffered for you and for me. Agony is what he was experiencing. And if you open your Bibles right now, John, you're a man of the Bible. Where in the gospel do you see Jesus hanging on the cross with one malicious word? Did he ever speak in anger? Did he ridicule and mock back? You ever known you were right and been ridiculed? You know that feeling where you just want to take him down a notch? Jesus being perfect didn't. He could have, but he didn't. What did he do instead? He took care of his mother. He took care of John, the disciple he loved. He made sure that his mother was going to be cared for all the days of her life. He asked for something to drink because he was thirsty. And we'll see that he communicated with two thieves. If Jesus was the high of the high, these guys were the low of the low. And that's what he spent his final time doing. See, we live in a world of unsteadiness. And I am my father's daughter. Gosh, I love my dad. He went to be with the Lord in 2010. And every single day I hear his voice in my head. And I used to tease him when he got to a certain age. And I would say, dad, you're sounding awfully old and curmudgeon-y. Because he would say things like, oh, I just don't know what's coming of this world. I just don't know. We're going to you know where. Uh-huh. I knew I wouldn't have to old school. And I would say, oh, dad, everything's fine. Everything's going to be fine. It's fine. It's fine. 
And then there are days where I'm like, I don't even know what it, where are we? What are we doing? We are, do you all realize that? It's one of the passages for all of you, my beautiful students in the room. You don't get it yet because you're young, but maybe someday you will. And me too, I did too. We live in a world where nothing needs to be steady. If you don't want to be married, get a divorce. If you don't want to do it, quit. If you don't like it, change it. Now, change is good, but it has to be called on by God, not because you just don't feel like it anymore. You don't have to stay the same gender. Just throwing it out there, right? You can determine your own identity, your own sexuality, your own viability. You can create an entire masquerade of reality on social media. Nothing is steady. But you are. You are. Because my feet are on the rock. Now, if you don't feel steady in your life, I'm just going to lay it out there. Are your feet on the rock? Trials and tribulations will come. That's not unsteadiness. It's the response that you have to it that will determine your steadiness. And we have this picture of Jesus hanging on the cross. We have these two thieves, and they're watching steadiness, faithfulness, kindness, goodness, love. And this is our Savior who is our greatest example. Amen? So we are to copy him in every way. And even in our own agony, even in our own trials, even in our tribulations, we are called to be steady, to be faithful, to honor God in all that we do, to represent him. If he was standing in the room watching you, would he be proud of you in any given moment? If not, fix it. If so, praise him. If not, fix it. If so, praise him. But learn to be steady because there's an outcome to being steady. And now we're really going to get into my favorite part. In order to be a follower of Christ, in order to stand out as a follower of Christ, you know, because we live in a world where everybody wants to stand out. Unique is the new trend. If you want to be a follower of Christ who stands out for Christ, you're going to actually have to stand out. You're going to actually have to stand out. If you are like every other human being in the world, particularly those who do not follow Jesus Christ, how are you standing out? Do you want to stand out? I do. And I know that I'm going to fail because I know that I'm imperfect. Then I try again, and then I try again, and then I try again. I'm not standing out for my own glory. I want to stand out so that you look at me and you say, what do you have? There's something about you. And then they come and they say, what do you have? There's something about you. And I say, I'm so glad you asked. Let me introduce you to Jesus Christ. Not me, but who lives inside of me. And so here we have a steady Jesus. And the thieves are watching. And this is where the thieves begin to divide. Because there's one thief who has one reaction, and there's the other thief who has the other. And it is powerful that we have both examples because we've already heard the beginning. How did the thieves get there? And now we already know the end, that Jesus dies on the cross. But what happens in the middle is revolutionary. Here's what happens. A thief accepts the gospel of Jesus Christ 
from Jesus Christ. Somewhere along the way, the repentant thief starts out by mocking and ridiculing Jesus. And he ends by going to paradise. How does that happen? When does that happen? Where does that happen? Well, the Bible doesn't say, and we can't really know because that decision, that moment, only God knows intimately the heart of a man. But here's what I wonder. Look at Luke 23, 34. Jesus says, maybe the most powerful line in the entire Bible. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I mean, I don't even like getting cut off in traffic. You know what I mean? Like when I, I don't have the yield and I'm trying to merge in the city of Colorado Springs, it's a near-death experience. I don't even like that. And Jesus is hanging on the cross after being tortured and spit upon and ridiculed and all. And he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now, again, I don't know what was in the mind of the thieves. And you know, sometimes we're the sinner, but we look at everybody else's sin and we're like, I don't know what's going on with them. Man, get it together, fools. The whole speck in the plank, right? So I don't know if that may have been what the thieves were hearing. But I can't help but wonder if the repentant thief thinks to himself, if he can forgive them, could he forgive me too? If he could forgive them, could he forgive me too? And when you stand out for God, when you fear him and you see him clearly, when you are steady, living faithfully, at some point, I guarantee you, someone searching for Jesus is going to notice. And they're going to say, well, if he could forgive you, maybe he could forgive me too. It's important to be steady because look at the outcome. The thief comes to the end of his life there's an expression that I have that I use with my kids. There's actually three expressions I consistently use in raising them. Two of them are now grown. One is almost there. And I tell them over and over again, till the end, till the end, till the end, till the end. I have it on one of my water bottles. It says, till the end of the line, I have watched from the stands while one of my sons played 90 minutes of soccer never sitting down, it's at halftime, grab some water. And they were getting creamed. Joel, you've seen it many, many times. You might've been the ref <laughs> for all I know. And they were losing like nine to two. There's no hope. There's no hope they're going to win. And I remember sitting in the stands and crying and crying out to Elijah till the end. And he ran like they were about to win with two minutes to go. That's how we should treat the delivery of the gospel to those who don't know Jesus. It's urgent. It's urgent. And I don't know 
Who is going to choose him? I don't know if they will ever choose him. And that's the most powerful, powerful part. You don't know. So with urgency, you need to tell everybody you meet. Because what if it's them? You're like, well, what if it's not? Well, I'm not in the game of cynical when it comes to salvation. I'm in the game of delivery. Because I don't want to overlook anyone. I don't want to go and lay down at night and say, gosh, I had a golden opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I was too busy. I was too bored. I was too uh, distracted. I was too irritated. Till the end is the example that Jesus gives us here. Because look what happens in Luke 23. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us, thief number one. All that he's seen, that's his response. But the other, thief number two, he rebuked and he said, do you not, and here's your goosebump moment. What's the next two words? Fear God. Do you not fear God? Oh, how the tables have turned. He sees. Do you understand that? He believed because he saw. He sees Jesus. He didn't in the beginning, and now he does. Fully as the God on the cross, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. Verse 41, and we indeed justly, we being the thieves, we are here out of our own actions. That's what he's saying. We did what we're being crucified for. But this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. And just like when they were mocking him, they're still right. He did nothing wrong. He who was no sin became sin. He was perfect and he bore your imperfection. And he said, Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Here's your next core takeaway. Important, important. Learn to be accountable. Learn to be accountable. What is happening in this moment is that yes, the thief is seen. He's in awe of the living God hanging on the cross. We don't know their position, either to his left or to his right. But there's an important step that happens because he sees Jesus so clearly, he owns his sin. It's not enough in Christianity to take the shiny bits. C.S. Lewis said, if you're looking for a religion that's easy, Christianity ain't the one. Paraphrase, C.S. Lewis would never say ain't. It ain't the one. It's hard work. It's hard work to follow Jesus, but it's the best work. Your whole life could be easy and meaningless, or it could be challenging and full of purpose. What are you living for? For me and my house, we're going to pick number two. You too? Amen? And if that is true for us, then we have to take our sin that's hanging on that cross and we have to own it. Corporate America 
you know, I go to my trainings for work and Craig does trainings for work. And what's interesting is that corporate America has a biblical model of leadership. They just don't either know it or call it that. And let me break it down for you. When you go to any kind of training, they'll teach you about two key principles, responsibility and accountability. Is this ringing the bell for anybody? Responsibility and accountability are not the same thing. Responsibility in the corporate language is when I give you tasks, when I give you duties, and your job is to carry them out. You have a process by which you will achieve said duties or tasks based upon your title, your rank, excuse me, your rank, your file. Accountability is what happens, the onus that is on you when you fail to meet those tasks, to do the process, to live up to your title and your role. In a nutshell, responsibility is process. Accountability is product. It's the outcome. So what is the analogy to Christianity? In Christianity, our duties or our tasks, that comparison, are the commands that God gives us. The example that Jesus was and is to us. Living in discipline spiritually, by fasting, by studying God's word, by prayer, by sacrificial living, by pursuit of holiness. Accountability comes when we sin because we fail to do everything I just said. You got to own it. You got to own it. And the thief, the repentant thief, shows us the power of that. Because even in the moment that he is preparing to die, they're coming to break his legs right at the very end, till the end. He says, I need Jesus because I see my sin. There is no shame in accountability. Missing accountability will only help you live in shame, but owning your sin will always set you free. Amen? Now we talked a lot about the winsome. We got to wrap this up. We talked about the winsome. Now let's talk about the lose some. And you're like, well, we just had three points of the win. What's left? I'm going to wade in, into some rocky waters here. The lose some. What do you need to release in order to live your life for God? Well, we could look at it a few different ways. You might see in the scripture that you need to release pride. Maybe you need to release anger, mocking. But I think if the two thieves teach us nothing else, they teach us the gospel, don't they? And at the core of the gospel is one word. You need to release your unforgiveness. I told you, Rocky Water. You need to release your unforgiveness. Unforgiveness is hard. It's hard. Cuts us down to the core because it usually comes from some great and deep pain. I'm not talking about the guy who cut me off on powers. I'm talking about something grave, maybe even traumatic that has happened to you. Ephesians 4.31. Let all bitterness... Really, I'm going to read slowly. I want you to think about each one of these words in your heart. 
I love you, Patty. She immediately closed her eyes. It's a good student. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor, that's that noise, the noise that's in your soul because everything's disrupted by your unforgiveness. Perpetual animosity, resentment, strife, fault-finding. You know when you go around, you can only see the bad in everybody? Slander, the malicious talk about someone's character. Put it away, along with every kind of malice, spitefulness, verbal abuse, malevolence. It's interesting to me, a lot of these words sound exactly like the mocking of Jesus, don't they? Now ask yourself again, when I said, have you ever been the mocker? Maybe, especially if you're struggling with unforgiveness. It just rots you. It just rots you. Verse 32 says, instead, now I love this about the Bible. God will say, don't do this. And you're like, but how, God? What am I supposed to do instead? And he's like, oh, let me help you out. Be kind. Replace your unforgiveness with kindness to one another. Be tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now we can, we have and could do an entire series on unforgiveness. But let me just tell you this one, and I'm not trying to be harsh because it's the same truth I have told myself. So hear my love for you when I tell you, if you are refusing forgiveness, it's not yours to refuse. You're trying to control and own what is not yours. And if Jesus had done the same to you, what you might be doing to someone else, you'd be doomed to hell right now. Let it go. Let it go. You know, they say that revenge is the poison that you wish to feed another and then die on yourself. Well, I think that could be true about forgiveness. If you are unforgiving, it's like a poison that you wish to feed. I want to make them suffer. I want to make them know that I hurt. I want them to feel the way that I feel. Let it go. Let it go. It's keeping you from living your life for God. And that life bears out. Sometimes you win some. And sometimes you lose some. But do you see now in the spiritual? We have to learn what to take from God so that we know I'm a winner. I'm a winner in the name of Jesus, not by my own, but by the power of the living God. And I have to learn that I have to release something. The very thing that the cross gave me, the very thing that the two thieves saw. Now you can choose which thief you want to be. That is up to you. Because let me tell you something. You can't make people choose Jesus. Not even Jesus could do that on the cross. He doesn't want to force you. And one thief joined Jesus in paradise, and one did not. The point of the usual suspects is we've said it again and again, to dig deep, to look at what you overlook, 
to see what you didn't see. But let me tell you something that's most powerful about this series, and this is really our team's heart for you. The most unusual suspect of all is you. It's you. It's you. It's you. Every single one of you have a purpose. I'm living part of mine right now. You have a job. You have a calling. And you have an opportunity, a privilege to tell people the good news of Jesus Christ. No one is too small. 700 years before they hung there, God already knew the two thieves would be there. He already knew. He's everywhere in time. He already knew that one would choose and one would not. That one would fear God. That one would see Jesus' steadiness. That one would choose accountability. And that one would release all of that sin, all of that pain, all, all of it, all of it. And he would say, Jesus, I need you. If you get that, you'll see there's nothing usual about the way God will use you. Let's pray. Faithful God, you are, you are the only God. People say, oh, well, there's really no God like the Christian God. And our response is, there is no other God, period. You're right. There's no other God like my God because my God is the only God. He's the only God that died and went down to the gates of hell and said, you can have them no more. They have my name. They have my blood and I have set them free. Help us to fear you, God. You're so awesome. That word awesome, we throw it about. Those are shoes are awesome. No, God, that's your word. You're awesome. We wanna be steady like you, God. We wanna own our sins so that the power of the cross is real to us. It's not a gesture, it's a reality. And we will release our unforgiveness in the same way that you granted us that which we could not do on our own. And that is, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And we will be whole and we will be healed. And we are unusual in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Vanguard Central Podcast. We encourage you to go out and live your faith in real relationship with Jesus and with others. God bless you, friend. See you next time.